Welcome back. We decided we just had to, for the second part of this program, take a break from Donald J. Trump. It is a great pleasure that we're able to speak with Stephen J. Harper, and we will do so again, I think, after the election. And between now and the midterms, we are looking forward to, again, speaking with Michael J. Trackman about the Supreme Court. He wanted to wait until they were back in session. They're back in session. We hope he will join us either next week or the week after. And our perennial favorite, Greg Pallast, has agreed to um, visit us again. And that's always fun, although the subject matter may be a little disturbing as we ramp up to what's going to happen here on the first Tuesday following the first Monday in November across the country. So we're going we're to get out of that for the moment. And what better way to do that than to talk about coup d'etats in America and our favorite general the United States, Smedley Butler. Two weeks ago on this program, at least if you were listening on KDVS, you heard a re-airing of our chat with David Talbot. His book, Devil Dog, was very entertaining. And uh, it was all about General Smedley Butler, whose book, War is a Racket, is a must-read. Everyone should have that, I think, in their home library. And it just so happens that our good friend Gordon Smith has just recently read a book a different book about General Smedley, Butler. And since he was coming by for a beer, we thought we'd mic him up and have a little chat on this very topic. So it is my pleasure to say welcome back to Radio Parallax. I think it's for his seventh appearance, Gordon Smith. Thank you, Doug. So talk about this book you've just read and who wrote it. And we know it's about Smedley Butler, but fill in some details. Gangsters of Capitalism is the name of the book. It's by Jonathan Katz and was published this year. So Smedley Butler had a very interesting background. He certainly did. (laughs) A Quaker from Philadelphia, very much from the upper crust of Philadelphia society. His mother was very well connected, and his father, even more so. His father was a congressman, chair of a very powerful committee, and a man who lent a helping hand to his son's uh, career throughout his son's career. And tell us his nickname, because I'm quite tickled. (laughs) The Fighting Quaker. (laughs) There are not a lot of Quakers who have that particular moniker. I I think I can safely say Mm -hmm. is unique. Mm -hmm. So, young Smedley, as a teenager, drops out of high school and joins the U.S. Marines. This is at the time of the Spanish-American War, which broke out in 1898. And I guess he thought that that sounded like a lot more fun than memorizing Latin verb tenses. Well, it probably was, frankly. Probably, (laughs) probably. So he signs up, and in fairly short order, he is sent to Cuba during the the dying phases of that particular conflict, which the U.S. won uh, pretty rapidly. But he did see some action, and he was posted to Guantanamo and uh, was there long enough to participate in in some skirmishes. So this was the first of his foreign postings, the first of what proved to be many, many, many. He must have fought in at least 10 different countries over the course of his 33 years yeah. as, a, as a Marine. We well, took part. He was putting, putting down the Boxer Rebellion, I think, did he not? 
Yes. He didn't go directly to China from, from Cuba. He first went to the Philippines, where by the time he arrived, the Spanish resistance had collapsed. The Philippines had been a Spanish colony for probably three centuries. So by then, the battle was against the local guerrillas who were seeking independence for the Philippines and didn't particularly like the idea that the Philippines, after three centuries of being a colony of Spain, was about to become a colony of the United States. I'd forgotten this part about the history that he had took took part in, in that rebellion, which I think cost the U.S. more casualties than the actual Spanish-American War. Very likely, and I'm sure a high proportion of those casualties were from disease, tropical diseases of one kind or another. But yes, he uh, not too long after that, he was dispatched to uh, what was then called Tianjin in China as part of a multinational expedition to put down the Boxer Rebellion. Yeah. And uh, he soon found himself in the midst of the fighting yet again, a very bloody affair that pitted the armies of several countries, Japan, Germany, the United States, against the um, uh, under-equipped boxer rebels who were pretty soon routed and Beijing conquered. And they were pretty fed up with foreign domination of the country, but they didn't really have much of <laughs> much of an actual government to rally around, is sort of how I would summarize it. No, China's uh, history in the first half of the 20th century, well, probably even the first three quarters of the 20th century, <laughs> is a pretty sad and, and bloody affair. So Smedley went on to fight in one U.S. imperial adventure (laughs) after another. In Panama, uh, the the role of the U.S. Army there was to enable Panama to separate from Colombia and for the U.S. to, in in gratitude, be awarded the Canal Zone, which was not finally given up until hmm, the better part of, uh, of a century. Let's talk about this. Correct me if I'm wrong. You just just refreshed on this, but we were negotiating with Colombia to to build a canal, and Colombia was saying, "Nah, nah, I don't think so. Nah, nah, nah." And they said, "Well, you know what? We know we could fund here an independence movement to cut off the part of Colombia that we will now call Panama and deal with those guys." Yes, yes. They found a willing group of local businessmen and uh, aspiring autocrats. <laughs> And Panama was born and is still with us today. (laughs) Yes. So Old Smedley did not stop there. He went on to become, uh, in effect, as he says uh, uh, himself, he was, what what was the term that he gave himself? He was... I happen to have it in my right hand yes. as we're discussing this. War is a Racket by Smedley Butler. And the little blurb they put on the front page is as follows. I spent 33 years in the Marines, most of my time being a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer for capitalism. A racketeer for capitalism. Now, I'm sure all of you have heard the term banana republic. Mm-hmm. That term comes from the, the banana wars that were fought in several countries in Central America, Nicaragua, 
uh, Honduras, Mexico. And the job of the Marines was to put down assorted military coups, peasant uprisings, and so forth, for the benefit of the United Fruit. And if necessary, hold an election to make it pretend that the guy that they were backing was legitimate president of the country. Yes, yes. (laughs) It was uh, considered uh, to be good form to put a veneer (laughs) of democracy on on the whole affair. But uh, it was a very thin veneer. He actually set up some of the elections, I think he said later. Yes, yes, he did. Although one of his more infamous uh, episodes was in Haiti, uh, when the Haitian legislature got a little bit uh, uppity, and the uh, U.S. authorities decided that it needed to be put in its place. Smedley was assigned the role of dissolving the... Haitian legislature at the point of a gun. <laughs> so he had many, many such, uh, such episodes in one country after another. So Smedley, throughout these, these decades, rose steadily through the ranks. So from a private as a, as a teenager, he eventually became a major general in the Marines. So he was... He was helped in his rise through the ranks by the fact that he was an extraordinarily brave man. He was awarded 16 medals in all, five of them for bravery, including two congressional medals of honor. Extraordinarily brave man, a very competent uh, officer. And, of course, the fact that his father was a very well-connected congressman did not hurt in the slightest. So that helped him considerably in getting some of the the postings that that he craved. But you know you have to to uh, give Smedley credit where credit was was due. He was very good at what he did as a a warrior for, in effect, the U.S. Empire of that period sure. from the late 1800s until he finally left the military in the in the 1930s. Does your book talk about his, his role in World War I? Because David Talbot goes into that a bit. Yes, he didn't actually fight uh, in, uh, in World War I. He had made himself too valuable because of his, uh, his competence. And one of the things that the U.S. desperately needed was somebody who understood logistics and uh, could you know, keep the, the flow of equipment and, and munitions flowing freely to the, the troops and the, and the front line. Uh, the U.S. involvement in World War I was pretty short. We only entered the war in 1917 when it had been going on for three years. And, of yeah. course, the war ended the, the following year. So it was a very rushed uh, affair. And professional soldiers like Smedley, especially of his level of seniority, were relatively few and far between. He's an endlessly fascinating character, Gordon. We, we, we can and have done, I think, whole shows on, on this man's history, but we don't have that much time. Let, let, let's, let's jump ahead from World War I to when he sort of becomes a national figure again in the 30s. There was the bonus march at Washington, and Douglas MacArthur puts it down with uh, great fervor, and I guess Butler was more advocating for his people, his, his, the soldiers. Yes, so you know Butler was very much a, a soldier's soldier, and the bonus march was about veterans, particularly veterans of 
World War I, who found themselves in dire straits in the, in the 1930s and marched on Washington to demand the bonus that had been promised to them. Promised but never paid. Promised but never paid, and according to the rules of the program, would not be paid until they died. Now, of course, it was the Depression, <laughs> and they and their families needed the money now. Yeah. So tens of thousands of them marched on Washington, and of course, it was brutally suppressed by MacArthur mm-hmm. and, and others who later became famous, such as Patton and, and Eisenhower. Butler, of course, was on the side of the soldiers and, in fact, addressed the soldiers and told them to fight for what was theirs, to fight for what they deserved. So I think that's indicative of the fact that by this stage of his career, Butler had finally begun to see the the light, had begun to realize that he was really just muscle for corporations that wanted to exploit countries like Nicaragua, Honduras, Dominican Republic, Haiti, and, and so forth. So he began making speeches about this around the country and began telling embarrassing stories about some of the things that he'd done <laughs> in the service of corporate uh-huh. America and the U.S. government and, mm-hmm. of course, the U.S. Marines. Bringing up phony elections, that sort of thing. Yes, exactly, <laughs> that sort of thing. So, a truly fascinating episode, which you've probably spoken about before on your show, is how he was recruited, or supposedly uh, attempted to be recruited, into leading a military coup against the administration of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1933. I'm keen to have you relate what what your author has to say about this remarkable episode in American history. Well, what makes it difficult to talk about this particular episode is that there are so many conflicting uh, accounts of what really happened. And because those who were allegedly behind the plots, wealthy business leaders, did not themselves get their hands dirty in this plot, but sent middlemen to talk to Smedley Butler. Those men retained plausible deniability. Well phrased. Yes. So Smedley Butler testified about this before a congressional committee in 1933. Uh, Of course, denials were thrown out left and right. Uh, The... The press stood with uh, the, the the barons of American uh, big big business and really, made fun. I'm shocked. I'm shocked to hear this. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So they made fun of uh, Butler's uh, Butler's accusations. So you know the whole smokescreen was ultimately very successful. Yes. In suppressing this yes. this scandal. Not too long after that, he wrote the book, which you hold in your hands, War is a Racket. You might even want to read the opening paragraph of that book. Well, thank you for that lead-in. I think I will. (laughs) Says Medley Butler in Chapter 1. War is a racket. It has always been. It's possibly the oldest, easily the most profitable, surely the most vicious. It's the only one international in scope. It's the only one in which the profits are reckoned in dollars and the losses... In lives. A racket 
is best described, I believe, as something that is not what it seems to be to the majority of people. Only a small inside group knows what it's about. It is conducted for the benefit of the very few at the expense of the very many. Out of war, a few people make huge fortunes. True then, and I think true today. I think so. So what are we to make of uh, this, uh, this whole story and whether or not our foreign policy has in fact changed since the era of gunboat diplomacy as practiced by Smedley Butler and well, his battalions? Long after Smedley Butler was, was sadly in the grave, uh, CIA took over a coup d'etat in Guatemala that's, I think, remarkably reminiscent of the sort of antics that Butler got up to down in, in the Caribbean. So I think, you know, and then there's little things like, oh, the the coup in that same year, uh, or the counter coup in the same year in Iran to put the Shah back on the throne. So I think that we don't, we know less about these, these uh, adventures these days, perhaps because of, you know, people are not speaking about them or telling firsthand accounts of it. But yeah, I think it's the same. Don't you? I think in general, yes. I mean, this country has fought in a truly stunning number of wars. I believe the current count stands at approximately 160 wars that the U.S. has fought in since 1776. So maybe the pace of our wars has slowed down somewhat from the era of uh, of Smedley Butler, but we are still... Probably, no, not probably, certainly the most interventionist power on the, on the planet. And on the domestic side, there was a coup d'etat, an attempted coup d'etat in America. And, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to re-air this David Talbot episode and, and to speak with you again about this is the fact that, well, talk of a coup d'etat seems to be in the air again, does it not? We watched... If you're watching television on January 6th, looks to me like that what was underway just didn't succeed. And of course, we are we looking at round two coming down the road? Is this possible? Um, I don't know, but I'm a little nervous. Well, Gordon, this is a fun little interlude. Uh, is an endlessly fascinating character. Your book again is, is, what is the name of your book again? Gangsters of Capitalism by Jonathan Katz. We can also recommend Double Dog by David Talbot, one of the talented Talbot family. And um, come again, Gordon. Thanks very much for the invitation, Doug. On next week's show, we hope to have either Greg Pallast or Michael J. Trackman. Either one will be good. And we're also making an effort to try and secure Barton Gelman for a future installment of Radio Parallax. His book, Dark Mirror, is one hell of a read. I've reached out to him today, and we'll, we'll see how that goes. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, as they all are. Our thanks again to Stephen J. Harper, author extraordinaire, and our good pal in this program, Gordon Smith. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week.